I love studying history. Anybody a history nerd with me on this? Couple? Okay, I love history. One of my favorite periods of time to study is World War II. And one of the craziest, coolest, most pivotal moments in world history, I think, is something that happened on June 6, 1944. Does anybody know what that was? That was D-Day. D-Day, uh, the invasion at Normandy. If you're not up on your World War II history, no shame, because there's a lot of stuff to remember. Let me just catch you up on what's going on. Basically, uh, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi army has taken over Europe, basically, okay? And they're controlling the thing. And the allied forces, who are basically, let's call them the good guys, uh, we, we couldn't get in. It looked like the Nazis had taken over the place and there's no way to deal with it. So in this big joint operation effort, the Allied forces for several years planned this invasion at the beach at Normandy, which is the north coast of France. It's a beach. And the goal was to just jump in there and start pushing back towards the center of Europe. And if we could push the Nazi forces further enough in, we could eventually retake ground and, and, and shift the war. It was our last ditch creative effort to come in and try to take this land back. June 6, 1944, it happened. Thousands and thousands of Allied forces stormed the beach. They parachuted from planes. They, they jumped in off of these uh, lander boats. It was an amazing scene. Over 156,000 troops hit these beaches in a couple of locations. Thousands died in the process, but they won. They won the offensive. They began to push back, and it was a turning point in the war. Now, the war continued for like another year, and it was hard, but it was the actions at D-Day that really shifted the tides of World War II. Paul's story. What in the World War II has that got to do with Christmas and Jesus and the Bible? Well, actually, when we talk about the Christmas story, there's a typical picture we get in our mind. And it turns out that the Christmas story is a lot more like D-Day than I think we would give it credit for. Uh, the, the traditional Christmas story that you hear is this rural, quiet setting. It's silent night, holy night, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. And you got this quiet scene. You've got Mary and Joseph, and they're huddled around this feeding trough, and there's shepherds that show up. And it's, and it's beautiful, and I like that image, and I think we've got them on our mantelpieces. We call it the nativity. And this is the typical picture of what the Christmas story is all about. The scene that is painted in the Bible is beautiful, and it's what happened, uh, but it's not the full picture. In this series, and actually kind of a mini-series, this week and next week, we're going to talk about what I'm going to call some untold stories of Christmas. It's actually something we did several years ago, uh, and I wanted to bring it back because it's, it's a really good picture of understanding why do we do this Christmas thing as Christians before we get into the untold story, let's actually look at the told story, the one that we're pretty familiar with. Linus told it on the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas special as he stood there holding this blanket. And you read it in the book of Matthew, also in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 2, uh, we're going to read a portion of it today. You can just read it on the screen. We're going to get into some other scripture in a minute. But this is a story you might be familiar with, hopefully. And starting in verse 4, it goes like this. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem. To the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and she was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and she placed him in a manger because there was no room for them available in the inn. And so there were shepherds living out in the flocks, in the in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and said, do not be afraid. 
I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He's the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So, the shepherds jump up and they run to Bethlehem. And what do they find? A baby. And it's a beautiful scene. Now, I start this morning with that story because... That's the story. I mean, that's, that's the story of Christmas. And that's like how uh, we, and I know, we could get into a lot of debates about all the histories of, you know, winter solstice holidays and all the different cultures. Everybody's got one. But Christians have adopted this time of year to celebrate specifically the coming of Jesus to the world. The story is that God became human. And that he came into the world in the humblest of ways as a baby. You ever had a baby? I mean, they, they are just helpless. And some would say, you know, useless. <laughs> they do nothing. They don't have a job. They can't feed themselves. They can't change themselves. God, supreme Lord of all creation, decides to enter into our world in that state, a state of humility, to grow up in this world, to experience the suffering and the pain of this world, and eventually to give his life for this world. He doesn't stay dead. He rises from the dead, and he becomes the Savior of all mankind. That's the Christmas story. And there's so much to be gained from hearing it, you know, that way. But today, I want to tell the same story, but I want to tell it from a different perspective. We actually read it in the Bible in another place. And it has more in common with World War II and D-Day than just the quiet scene that we see in the nativity story. Today, I want to look at the Christmas story, but not as a birth story. Today, we'll look at the Christmas story, the untold Christmas story, as a war story. So grab your Bibles. We're going to find the Christmas story in an unexpected place. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to want to follow along in your Bible this morning, okay? Because we're going to be in the book of Revelation. Anybody read Revelation this morning for your morning serial time? Probably not. A lot of Christians actively avoid the book of Revelation. Uh, pet peeve, by the way, it's Revelation. It's singular. Not Revelations. Why? Because it was a single vision. The word Revelation, it comes from the Greek word that basically is apocalypse, and when we hear apocalypse, we hear like end times and craziness and the sky is falling. And there's a little bit about that in Revelation. But primarily the book of Revelation, the word apocalypse is translated into English as a vision, a revelation, something that you've seen. And so this is a story that John the apostle sees as God kind of pulls back the curtains of the spiritual realm and shows him the heavenly realm. And he sees some things and he writes them down. Some of the things in the book of Revelation have already happened. Some of them were happening at the time with John. Some of them, it looks like, are yet to come. I don't want you to get stuck in the weeds with Revelation. When we read Revelation, it shouldn't be a scary book. It should be one that we get into and we're like, okay, this is a picture of some things that God wants us to see. And I think that it's, a lot of it's really open for discussion. In fact, in the first century, when people did like biblical type studies, it was never like this where there's a dude who seems to know all the answers and he stands with a microphone and he's talking and everyone else is like, let me take notes. Like, that's what, that's what Western church has done to God's conversation about, you know, things. But no, in, in these first century conversations, it was like, let's read this together as a community. Let's discuss it together and let's see what implications and applications it can have in our life. And so that's the way we're gonna kind of dig into it today. We're gonna be in Revelation chapter 12. Chapter 12, and starting at verse 1. Uh, by the way, if you need a Bible, we've got some free ones at the back by the door. You can feel free to grab one at any time. Uh, if you need a Bible to keep, take it. Put your name in the front cover, and it's yours to have. Uh, if you want to just use it for the day and put it back by the end of the day, that's fine too. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And believe it or not, 
This is another telling of the Christmas story. Here we go. A great and wondrous sign appeared in the heavens. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And we're going to kind of go through this kind of uh, line by line because I want to kind of break it down for you. Uh, You can find all of this information as well on your own. The internet is full of it. It's not crazy. When you look at the book of Revelation, the type of literature it is, it's it's an ancient apocalyptic literature, which basically means that it uses a lot of symbolism, a lot of imagery, a lot of numbers, and it helps you kind of put some pieces together. It's a puzzle to, to understand and to dig into and find a treasure. So let's look at this first sentence. First of all, pretty much everything John sees in the book of Revelation happens in the heavens. Picture it as, you know, the, the projection screen for what God is showing him. I think he's literally sitting on a beach looking at the sky. And so that's what he sees there or it sees it somehow in his mind. I don't know. I wasn't there, but everything he says, I saw this in the heaven. I heard this from the heavens. It was up in the heavens. And what does he see? He sees this woman and, and she's wearing some interesting garments. She's clothed in the sun and she's got the moon and the star, the moon under her feet and she's got a crown with 12 stars on it. The sun, the moon, and the stars. Okay, as you look through Old Testament literature, uh, what you find is that when there's the sun, the moon, and the stars, it, it tends to be symbolic of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And so you see this in some of the stories. There's a story with Joseph. There's a story with Abraham. There's a couple of other stories. I think Moses has one. And there's these kind of visions of sun, moon, and stars. And uh, John and his early audience would have picked up on this and known this. So we've got something happening with the nation of Israel. There's this woman. She seems to be the kind of personification of Israel. And she's wearing something on her head, this crown with 12 stars. All throughout the book of Revelation, you've got stuff happening 12 times. And there's 12 things and 12 this and 12 that. When you see 12... Again, it's an allusion to, allusion to the nation of Israel. There were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. So you see 12, I want you to think Israel, okay? So now we have this scene. There's a woman up there. She represents Israel. And there's something about this woman that you're going to need to know. Next line. She was pregnant. And she cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. That sound familiar? Luke chapter 2. There's a woman giving birth. Her name is Mary. I don't want to draw too much of a close uh, apples for apples comparison between these two stories, but we're basically starting to tell the same story, but from the spiritual realm. And essentially, this scene is something playing out where the nation of Israel is about to give birth to something big. It's a big deal. Hold that thought. Verse 3. And then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. That'd be cool to add to your little nativity set on your mantle, wouldn't it? Um, it escalated quickly, didn't it? Sweet little scene. Lady in the sky, she's going to have a baby. And now there's a dragon. Okay, let's talk about this dragon. Uh, there's a lot there. More imagery, more symbolism. Again, John is borrowing, John, I mean, this is God, borrowing some imagery from Old Testament stuff. And, and speckled throughout, and it's fun to find these little things. Speckled throughout the Old Testament, there are serpents, snakes, scaly things, even sea monsters mentioned. And anytime you see something like that, they generally represent an enemy of God. There's evil. In fact, we're going to find out in a second that this dragon represents Satan himself, okay? And so if you're familiar with the story of Adam and Eve, uh, it's described as a, there's, a, there's a deceptive serpent there. Even David and Goliath, if you read the, the story there, 
Goliath is described as having these scaly armor. I'm telling you, it's really cool. I've got a whole list of stuff in my footnotes here of passages in Scripture where there's these scaly things, but uh, Genesis, Ezekiel, Psalms, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, if you want a screenshot of that, come get me later. It's really cool to look into. This dragon's a bad dude, okay? And he's also got some other things going on. Uh, he, he's red. He's red, which is important, particularly in the book of Revelation. Uh, there are other red creatures in Revelation. You have this, this red, this scarlet um, this, this red harlot, she's a harlot, and she is drunk on the blood of the saints. That's where we find her. So there's a red individual, and it's evil. And then we've also got this red horse who is oppressive to believers. And now you've got this dragon who's got a similar agenda. Bad news. This dragon's got seven heads. And the heads have ten horns, and there's seven. There's crowns on the seven heads. What in the world? More numbers. Seven Anybody tell me what seven is often symbolic for in Scripture? Anybody know? Perfection, God, yes. Generally, when you see completion, perfection, or God, it, it, seven is the representative of that kind of thing. But this is interesting. It's, seven should be good. Seven's a good number. But who's got seven? The red dragon. There's a conflict there, but it's a very fun conflict because what's happening is this evil creature is posing as God. He's got these, these horns, the ten has a thing to do with mankind, and also the seven crowns. The crowns, they're going to represent uh, kingdoms, government, that kind of thing, okay? So this is, this is an evil character, but he's kind of trying to pose himself as a, a good thing. And how's he doing it? Through government, through kings, through leadership and stuff like that. I'm not making this all up. This is like thousands of years of biblical scholarship and people understanding. And this is kind of where we land on this thing. Okay, Wow. So this is a bad dude, and he's posing as something good, and he's got a lot of power. And in verse 4, something crazy happens. His tail, tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. You see in the image. There's a lot of debate over what exactly this means. I'm not going to get into it because it's not relevant to what we're talking about today. But I'll tell you this. This is the image of a powerful being. Whatever these stars represent, some say angels. He's powerful enough in the image to like knock stars out of their orbit. Okay, so this is a powerful thing. I get it. That, that wouldn't really happen from one place because of three-dimensional space and whatever. But this is a vision, okay? And it's showing this is an immensely powerful thing with influence, government, crowns, and stuff like that. And what is he doing? Well, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child at the moment it was born. There's two things going on here. First of all, the woman. All right, God, God has spent generations planning for this moment. Uh, he prompted the formation of a nation. The whole Old Testament, two-thirds of your Bible, is the story of God forming a nation, the nation of Israel. And you've got the rising up of, of a whole kingdom and all the stories in the Old Testament. God's been working on this because he's got a plan to come down into the world and rescue us from sin. That's going on. And all along the way, he's got these plans and the details. He perfectly orchestrated the coming of Jesus down to the prophecies that were made about him, down to the events that happened. We just talked about the shepherds and, you know, like, they're like, we're going to go to Bethlehem. And wow, I found it. And there's this star. There's all these incredible things going on. That's side one of the story. But the other side of that coin is that the evil forces in the spiritual realm, they weren't oblivious to this plan. They saw it happening. They saw God forming a nation. They saw these things, and all throughout the story, they're trying to shut it down. Constantly, they're trying to come into the nation of Israel and mislead the kings and mislead the people and bring all kinds of paganism in and try to dethrone God to somehow shut down God's big plan. 
all the way up to the life of Jesus. Do you know the story of, of Herod? If you know some of the, Christian, the Christmas story, there's this king named Herod who when he hears that there's a threat to his throne because there's this prophecy about a king being born in Jerusalem and all these things, Herod goes and has all of the kids two years old and younger killed. It's a genocide. Why? Because he wants to shut down this thing and who's behind that? I'm going to say whoever's behind this red dragon. Crouching, trying to devour the baby before it's born. Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male son, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Remember the crowns that the dragon's wearing? Kind of neat stuff. And then this happens quick, okay, so don't miss this sentence. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. What happened in that sentence? Okay, baby's born, and then snatched up to the throne. It's gone. I think this is what's going on in this one sentence is basically like the whole New Testament or the whole at least Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The whole life of Jesus happens between you know, the, peer, the period after scepter and, and uh, the period at the end of throne. Like That's the whole life of Jesus, his ministry, his miracles, his death, burial, and resurrection. That all happens and then he's swept up to the throne of God. It's pretty, pretty quick that goes down there. And I love it because it's like the dragon is just powerless. I mean, he stands there, he's like, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you. Hey, missed, just a whiff. Now, we do see the devil show up in Jesus' story uh, a couple different ways, but the way that this is abbreviated is really cool. Then you get to verse 6, okay, because now the woman, she's still in the story, she fled into the wilderness to a place that God prepared for her where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now, it's easy, like I said, it's not apples for apples. When we see the woman, we think, oh, that's Mary. But remember, she's representative of like God's whole people. And so after Jesus does his ministry in the earth and he's swept back up to be uh, with God, what happens to God's people, the woman? Well, the woman's still left here to deal with the dragon, with the evil in the world and what's going on. And so she flees and where does she go? She goes to, I love this, she goes to a place that God has prepared for her in advance. Uh, man, this represents a lot of things. Uh, initially, it's the, the early Christians who are persecuted, and some of them have to initially flee Jerusalem. But then it continues for generations and generations. And even today, I've got friends that live in India, and you hear the stories of things happening in Afghanistan and other places where Christians are being persecuted and tormented and even killed. And what I love about this piece of the story, it's a snapshot, but is that God has prepared a place for us when we are in this type of bad season. It says 1,260 days. Uh, we won't get too much into that, but it, it's, that number shows up a couple times in Revelation. And from what I understand, it means a period of time during which God will kind of protect us while we're also being uh, under attack. That's, that's what's going down there. So and she's, she's, she's running. She's running for it, but she's safe as well. Then verse 9. In verse 9, a cosmic battle begins. It says, there was war in the heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. Michael is a figure that we see several times in the Bible. And he's basically Jesus' like, uh, warrior. And we see him taking on some major things. Um, he's bad to the bone. You do not want to mess with Michael. Let me just go ahead and warn you about that if you ever get an opportunity. Don't challenge him to a street fight. You, you're not going to win that. But this says, this is crazy. It says, but he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. This dragon and his army is very, very powerful, not to be fooled with either. It's important for us to know right here, and I just want to plug it, only the name of Jesus has the power 
to fight against the forces of evil in this world. He's the only one who has the supreme authority to speak into that and to control it. It says the great dragon. Oh, then, then there's a shift. Okay, this, this is, you know, vision here. So it pops from one thing to the next. Verse uh, 9, a shift happens. Even though the, the army was kind of defeated, the great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and the angels with him. Woo! Boom! Actually, not so boom because where did he get hurled down to? Take a look. What is it? The earth. That's where we are. So that, that kind of stinks. Um, so it was like, yay, we won. Oh, no. And that's going to pop up here in a minute again. But out of nowhere, where it seems hopeless, okay, the, the woman's on the run. Michael and his crew can't win. And then, boom, the dragon just gets beat down, thrown down to the earth from his, let's call it his uh, evil throne, down to another place. And if you ever chopped the head off a snake and you've seen that thing start to wriggle around all over the place like kind of what I picture is happening and in verse 10 you hear this voice again it happens in the heaven because that's the screen on which John is watching this vision it says then I heard a loud voice say now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down this is Jesus. He gets on the intercom system and he says, it's over. I have fought it. I didn't break a sweat. I threw him out. How? Verse 11 tells us how this happened. How that battle happened so quickly. Do not miss verse 11 this Christmas, guys. This is the least uh, known Christmas verse. It says, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony. They didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. What in the world just happened here? The battle's over. The cosmic war is just done. What, what's going down here? First, it says they triumphed over him by his blood. Now, I mean, I, I don't want to assume too much. I love to be a church where people at all levels of their faith can come in here from ground zero, and I always want to create access points. This is the story of, we hear this at Easter time. This is Jesus after having lived a human life. He's crucified on a cross, and in that story, it says that he carries the weight of sin on his own shoulders, and he actually dies a physical death. Jesus was fully God, yet also fully human. We can't understand that because our little human brains can't contain the information. But in that moment, he sheds his blood and then defeats death after three days in the, gra in the grave. First Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that he rose in victory over death. What happens? The moment... That the woman fails and has to run in the wilderness and, and the, the, the angel army fails and can't fight him. Jesus steps in and when Jesus sheds his blood, when God bleeds, the fight is over. Boom. Dr. Mark Moore is a, a scholar that I love to follow and, and a lot of the material I'm sharing today is stuff from, from seminars he's given that I listen to online. Uh, but... He says this about this moment. He compared Jesus' coming to earth, the Christmas story, to a spiritual D-Day. He said D-Day was an extraordinary battle. The war wasn't over. There were still battles to fight, but the allied forces had won. And in the same way, Jesus defeats death. 
and he gave his life on the cross and, and he resurrected himself from the dead and the war with evil was won. Now there's still battles for us to fight, right? Every day, there's still evil in the world. And that's what I picture as this snake just writhing around and causing havoc all over the world. And more than that, I believe that he's still got some, whatever, sentience or ability to go out and, and even some power to come in and do some things. But the war is over. He's on marked time. It's just a matter of time before the sweep, sweep up crew comes in to just finish things off. But when we fight daily, guys, we fight from a place of victory. We fight from a place of already having won, from having our warrior, our king, parachute in and take care of business. God bleeds and the fight is over. And there are two little things from this passage, two little things, two huge things, these truths that we need to walk away with. This was verse 11. It says, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Guys, Jesus did the heavy lifting. But we get to play a part in this battle. When believers in Christ start preaching, darkness shudders. The language of the evil one is lies. But when we tell the story of Jesus and what he does in human lives, that is truth. And truth shining into lies is like a light shining into darkness. In fact, John makes that exact same comparison in the Gospel of John and in his letter, 1 John. From everything we know about Jesus, this, this lines up. He gives us the opportunity to play a role in the story. And the cool thing is our testimony, our, our testimony is the opportunity to share what God has done in our life. I'll talk about that more in just a second. But let's let that marinate. Because, guys, we just studied a chapter of Revelation. <laughs> what? Dragons and seven-hooded stuff and numer numerology and all this. Let that marinate. And let me just take a second to step back and think about it. You know, Christmas is a lot of fun. It's, uh, it's the most wonderful time of the year, you know, we say. We do all kinds of things. I was riding with my family this week in the car. We were looking at Christmas lights and listening to Christmas music. Like, hopefully you get to do it at some point. And a certain song came on the radio. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And my son kind of reflectively said, wait, I wonder who decided that, like, Christmas got to be the most wonderful time of the year? Like, who got to pick? He's like, I think summer's pretty awesome. <laughs> I was like, that's a really good point. I don't know. And, I, and in my cynicism, I said, well, it's because some marketing genius figured out that if they tell us it's the most wonderful time of the year, they can make more money on us. And so we bantered about that for a second. Then my wife, who's way smarter and more spiritual than me, she said, well, yeah, that might be true. But also for Christians, it's the most wonderful time because uh, Jesus is a pretty big deal. <laughs> and it's true. Like, we could pick any time of the year, and, and honestly, Easter is a good time to remember that. And honestly, you know, June is great, March, fantastic, October, pick a day. In fact, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every single week at our church when we take communion. It's a huge deal. But I love that our culture has kind of wrapped our fingers around this December time zone to say, hey, let's have Christmas. And we have all of these moments in my house, we've got lights up on the house and lights in the house and inside the house on our Christmas tree and other places. And I was sitting on my couch the other night and it was quiet. And I was just reminding myself, like, these lights need to remind me that Jesus is the light of the world. I, I can't just sit here and be like, it's festivities, it's just culture, it's just fun and games. And I get to watch Tim Allen dress up as Santa Claus and the Grinch and like that. That's fun and cookies. I love it. But guys, Jesus is a, a big deal. And when we see the away in a manger, no crib for a bed, Jesus in his little crib, and we're like, oh, he's sweet, he's cute. No, man, that's a warrior. 
It is a warrior who parachuted in to take care of business. He's our savior. He's our king. He's our Lord. So what? As we wrap up this morning and in the time we got left, I just want to take what is like a pretty huge mind-blowing story and try to boil it down into some things we can take home with us today. And I got a couple of so what's that I've come up with, three of them actually. Uh, so what's. And, and I hope that I hope that you can grab onto at least one of these today and take them home as your weekly like, challenge. I've got one big challenge I want us all to try to do, but one of these three should hit. Okay, so, so what? So what? Jesus, uh, Christmas is a war story, so what? Well, number one, there's a war, so choose a side. Choose a side. Um, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, he said, whoever's not with me is against me. And that's big words. The thing is, we live in a culture where it's pretty acceptable to just kind of be spiritually neutral. I mean, we don't step anybody's toes and like, who's to say that your truth is any better than my truth and all these things. And I get it. Like, that's part of the world we live in right now. But here's the deal. In the story that we just read, in the story we just read, there's this creature. Now, the dragon is symbolic. I don't know if there's actually a dragon. I don't know what the devil looks like or spiritual forces. But I tell you what, I feel them in my life and in this world. He exists and there are powers that throughout all culture and all time, people have acknowledged some sort of spiritual war going on. And as this story unfolds, we see an entity whose power is great enough to swipe a third of the stars out of the sky, knocking suns out of their orbits. That's an immense power. Power put into exercise over government and other ruling powers around us to hold sway on us and to lead us away from our God. But listen, in an instant... Jesus comes in and whoops his tail. <laughs> Choose a side. And I'm gonna tell you what, though both powers are pretty strong, I know what side I wanna stand on. And the coolest thing about the Jesus story is that he invites every one of us to come step on his side. Come be a part of what I'm doing. And he gives us a role in that. I wanna say a phrase that I was gonna say a minute ago, but I don't wanna miss it. We can't fully appreciate the baby in the manger without understanding the risen Savior who defeated the cross. And now you might be in a place right now in your life where you're like, I don't know, man. I, maybe you grew up in church and like you're just kind of dabbling in it right now as an adult. Or, or maybe, maybe you have not got a clear picture of where your faith is. Guys, this is a safe place to explore that. Come be with us every week. Come back every week with us as we just dive into God's word and understand what he has for us. And I want to encourage you to lean into the story and ask yourself this simple question. What if it's true? This isn't about unpacking every single question because, man, every worldview requires faith. Even a worldview that has no God in it requires faith. You've got to deal with the unanswerable questions somehow. But my challenge for all of us is to lean into the story of Jesus and just say, what if it's true? And if you believe that it is true, choose a side. Don't be wishy-washy. Don't sit on the fence. Don't choose a gray area. But say, okay, I choose Jesus. And with that comes some responsibility. So what? Choose a side. Second, so what? So tell your story. <laughs> tell your story. In our passage in Revelation 12, 11, it says, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. I don't know if you've noticed this, but every day lies and darkness multiply. I mean, it's just getting worse. 
And it's not just because we're all a bunch of old fogies and we're just like, oh, we're in the good old days. No, it's like, no, because it's always been that way. Lies and darkness spread and multiply and as a consequence, people live in fear and people live without hope. And what they need to know is that God has not forsaken them. God is all around them. And you know how they can know that? By the power of your testimony. You, by simply saying words, can shine light into the darkness of this world. A testimony is a witness. It's a legal term, okay? And so you've got to prove that something happened in a court of law. You call a witness to the stand, and what did that person do? They say, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, this is where I was, this is what we did. This is a testimony. So that's why talking about your story with God is your testimony, because you're bearing witness to what God has done. And so tell your story, and it may look something like this. There's a great old song, I once was lost but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And there's a formula for that. I once was blank, then I met Jesus, and now I'm blank. That's the formula for telling your story. And so yours might be more like, I once battled an addiction, and I couldn't stop. But I discovered a community who knew Jesus, and it it helped with that, and wow, I've been transformed. And I still have hard days, but now I've got somewhere to take that pain. That's your story. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't even have to memorize all the books of the Bible in the right order when someone tells you a scripture and you're like, I'm sorry, I gotta go to the front and find the index. Like, that's fine. But you've got a story. Your story might be, I once wrecked a marriage. Yeah, in fact, that's done. I can't even fix it anymore. But I found Jesus and I'm being restored day by day. And I've repented from some of my mess. And wow, life is good again. That's a testimony. I once lived a sinful and materialistic life, but then I learned that, man, God's plan for me is generosity and humility. And I'm living in that now, and wow, I've been transformed. Your story, your testimony, it silences the lies of the devil because it shines the truth into the the lies. And it lets the people around you know the difference. And so here's my challenge. Every week I want to challenge that. It's like, it's expected, by the way, some of you are a guest here, and Uh, I want you to know, like, we've created a culture here where it's like, as a a family, we want to do some things together. Christianity is just not about, like, a status on Facebook for your faith. No, it's like, you should be doing things in your life, actively taking steps to grow. And so I want to give us a challenge every week that we can take home. So here's this week's challenge. This week's challenge is tell your story, but this is it. Since sharing God's truth is a weapon against the lies of this world, get in the practice of sharing your testimony by telling your God story to someone this week. Oh, I didn't know I was going to have to talk to somebody. Okay, well, let me tell you a couple of ideas about how you can tear it. Just leave that up there, and you guys uh, see how you want to do this. Here's some ideas. Parents, if you're a parent, parents, uh, if, if, if you've chosen the Jesus side, by the way, uh, your, your testimony is, may still be being written. You might still be choosing a side, and that's, that's fine. That's fantastic. I can't wait to hear your story. But if you've chosen the side, parents, do your kids know your story? Like sometimes we try to like baby our kids uh, and uh, don't baby your kids, adult them. They need that. They're gonna be adults way longer than they'll be babies. And at different levels when it's appropriate, let them know how much God has impacted your life and the decisions that you make as a family because of that. That's your testimony. You don't even have to be awkward and tell somebody that you didn't wanna talk to. You can tell the people that live in your house they may not know. Here's an idea. Maybe you use uh, Facebook or Instagram. what if you somehow in a creative way told your story as a post this week? You could even say, hey, at my church, we're trying to tell our story, and maybe some of y'all don't know. This is where I come from, and this is where I am now. Or take some pictures, before and after, whatever. 
That's a creative way. Um, maybe you could be bold. You could actually tell someone who you're trying to talk to Jesus about. Like maybe you've been praying for this person and you've been waiting for the right moment. Hey, the moment's coming. And you don't have to do it today. Pray about it Monday through Thursday and do it Friday. <laughs> Take some time. Tell the story. Or maybe, here's a creative idea. Make a phone call to a person whose story changed your life. Let them know, hey, your story impacted me and it led me to Jesus. And I want to let you know my story. We need to practice this because this is the way that we silence the dragon. This is the role we play. They won by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. We talk about shining light in dark places. This is like one of the ways to do that. Tell the story. Uh, So there's a war, so what? Well, pick a side, tell your story. And finally, here's this. Celebrate the victory. So often in Christianity, and maybe you grew up in a Christianity, it was like this. It's like the whole point is to be sad and mourning all the time because I'm such a dirty, rotten sinner. Maybe you heard that. Maybe uh, you've said in a lot of sermons where that's all you ever heard. Uh, Yeah, yeah, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. Okay, let's move on. But by the grace of God, you have been redeemed. You have been given new life. We're called in Scripture that we are a new creation. The old has gone. The new is here. Scripture says that we put to death the old self so that we can rise to walk in newness of life. So celebrate the victory. And this week, celebrate the victory. The war is ugly. And there are battles all around us, but Jesus has won the battle. So we don't have to live in a face place of fear and hopelessness and guilt and shame. We can live in a place of grace and victory. Celebrate the victory. That's what this Christmas season is about. And it all began when God in the flesh flesh jumped in on our spiritual D-Day. On that silent night, holy night. And that is an untold story of Christmas. Let me pray for us this morning.